I'd like to welcome everyone to the Florence Weinberg Show. Frank McKay here with Dr. Florence Byham Weinberg, the author of 16 books and counting. Her memoir will be upon us uh, sometime sometime soon. She's the uh, the subject of a documentary, and she was the subject along of a long radio series uh, prior to becoming the uh, the host of her own radio slash podcast show. And we urge everyone to binge listen to uh, to those wonderful words and and comments that she's been making all along. But without further ado, uh, welcome, Dr. Weinberg. Thank you, Frank. I'm glad to be here. Well, listen, it's uh, we're, we're glad uh, we're glad to have you. I know you had a big event uh, not too long ago. A lot of writers, and uh, you know, it seems like it's something that you uh, you enjoy even uh, even to this day. You've been doing this a long time, uh, but you enjoy getting together with other writers. Oh, absolutely, yes. Uh, there, uh, San Antonio is a very artistic town. It's even got a ballet uh, and, wow. and an occasional opera. And, of course, there are uh, string quartets all over the place. And uh, the orchestra, uh, although it has had financial difficulties, uh, is still with us. And it's a fine orchestra, by the way. We really have excellent musicians in this town. So... Um, Anyhow, uh, I'm in the literary end of the arts here, and uh, I support anything I can. <laughs> and the Third Monday Writers is open to anybody who writes any kind of uh, prose or poetry. And uh, we have quite a variety of people coming, and it's always fun. And we trade around um, different different authors um, act as host um, one after another. So <clears throat> it's once a month on the third Monday of each month. Uh, and it's not a, a difficult thing because everybody brings food. And the host simply uh, puts his or her home uh, at the disposal of the group and uh, and supplies some wine and beer and uh, um, and maybe a starter or something, some some bread and sliced ham and smoked turkey and that sort of thing. And then the others will bring in all kinds of dishes that are imaginative and and delicious very often. A lot of creative so people in the room. You imagine yeah. a lot of creative dishes. Yes, great conversations. So so it's fun. I you were telling me a little off mic. Uh, about and it ties into one of your books as well, but uh, you know it, some some interesting history, Texas history, and it's actually rearing its head now. One of the flags, um, uh, it's it's a little bastardized, I guess, since since the original flag, or it's evolved, however you want to look at it. Uh, but a, kind of an interesting story you were telling me. Yes, yes. Um... I'm going to call the title of my talk today the Gonzales Flag. Um, and Gonzales was the site of a small skirmish, which in the imaginations of the people afterwards became a heroic battle because it was the, the opening battle of the Texas fight for independence uh, in 1835. And, of course, the Battle of the Alamo was 1836. So anyway, <clears throat> my book, I'm going to read a section of the book that describes the battle uh, from my research about it. Uh, my book is called Before the Alamo, and uh, it came out a year, year ago last fall. And my purpose was not the usual puffery about the Alamo battle in 1836, but rather um, what the actual causes of the battle. Uh, there were very uh, various causes, varied causes, and it wasn't just the fight for Texas liberty. Uh, it was actually fought <clears throat> by people who had come in very recently and were probably mostly filibusterers, um, filibuster uh, was a word that was applied to pirates and other marauders. Oh. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, that was the origin of the word, uh, and it's, it then became applied. Came, uh, started to be applied to in, uh, intrusive and interruptive uh, uh, speeches in uh, in Congress, of course. Uh, so uh, now that's the only thing we think about is the is the congressional filibuster. Uh, but it it originally meant people who came in illegally into uh, into Texas uh, in order to grab land, and and the people who fought in the Alamo were largely uh, people like that. There were other people who came in legitimately among them, and there were some uh, Mexican Texans uh, among them also. But um, largely, uh, it was. People who were hope, hoping to um, get some free land in Texas and had come in for that purpose, and that was their fight for liberty. Mm. It was their fight for the right to grab land. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm being slightly cynical. Yeah, about but it. but still, it's it's not not far off from the truth. It's very close to yeah. it. Yeah. So anyway. Um, those people that I wrote about in Before the Alamo were not the um, rapists, criminals, and drug dealers that a certain <laughs> previous president talked about in, uh, in his very first speech uh, as a candidate. Uh, they were honest and intelligent and industrious people. Uh, they were either pure Spanish or sometimes Italian or some other uh, European uh who had ended up on the frontier, which was Texas at the time, of course, um, and who had built a, a rather decent town here. Uh, it was called Bayard de San Antonio at that time. And I may uh, lapse and simply call it Bayard, uh, which is now pronounced Bear. Uh, the, the, the jota in the middle of the word is uh, simply ignored dropped. So it's uh, we are in Bear County now instead of Behar County. Hmm. Um, but we call it, and it was Behar de San Antonio, and of course the San Antonio stuck, and Behar uh, only uh, became a subsidiary name of the, uh, the county itself. Okay, so the, the people then in this town to begin with were Spanish or they were mix, a mix, so mestizos who were half Indian, half Spanish. And um, they had a government, they had laws, they had customs. They built uh, some of the uh, buildings that still endure, such as the cathedral um, and, uh, and the... Um, uh, the Alamo itself, the, the mission, all the missions, the five missions, uh, etc. So uh, the Anglos coming in and just sort of overwhelmed uh, the original uh, people and started denigrating them because, of course, they were seizing their property and taking it over and taking over the business and the government and eventually calling the, the original people, the uh, uh, the mestizos, the ones who were mixed uh, Indian and Spanish or some other uh, white, so-called white blood, uh, called them greasers, Mexican greasers, and so on. So my purpose in writing this whole thing was to set the record straight about who was here uh, before the Alamo and why they uh, didn't... Uh, didn't join enthusiastically in the Battle of the Alamo. Uh, Colonel Travis, who was in command of the Alamo uh, force, defenders, um, called the people of San Antonio traitors because there were only about 15 of them uh, who had joined forces with the uh, Texians, as they called themselves at the time. And the reason they didn't was that they were Mexicans. They were Mexican citizens. And they were very much politically split. And some of them uh, were uh, pro-centralist government. And they, uh, in other words, pro-autocracy. And Santa Ana 
have, had recently usurped the presidency and declared himself dictator. And there were people in San Antonio who believed in the good old days when uh, Spain ruled um, te- ruled Mexico and t- Texas and New Mexico and California and so forth was part of Mexico at the time. And those who, um, right after Spain was uh, freed from Spanish rule in 1821, uh, they got together and by 1824 had produced a constitution that was very, very close to our own constitution. It was setting up a representative government, uh, a democratic government, and the previous provinces, and Texas was one of those, uh, would become states with its own government and so on, a federation. Um, and so there, the people of San Antonio were split between being partisans of the 1824 Constitution, uh, which had been abrogated by Santa Ana, uh, who attacked the Alamo, in case people don't know that kind of that history that closely. Uh, he attacked and destroyed the Alamo and uh, slaughtered everybody in the Alamo um, and went on then uh, to try to, uh, to get rid of all the Anglos in Texas. Um, and uh, then in the Battle of San Jacinto over in East Texas, uh, he was defeated by Sam Houston and General Sam Houston. So I'm giving you a... A, a history of Texas, yeah. the, the real history of Texas here. Okay, so uh, the Battle of Gonzales then took place the year before the Battle of the Alamo, and it has been considered the opening battle of the Texas War of Independence, and it has been called the Lexington of the Texas Revolution. Uh, and um, it actually uh, was not anywhere near as important as the Lexington of the uh, of the Colonial Revolution. Um, so, and I chose to I choose to talk about Gonzalez first in order to um, give you the context for the flag, um, since it it's updated version, uh, as you said. Uh, Frank, is in use today, very much in use today, and uh, in nefarious, for nefarious purposes. So first I'm going to read a little passage from my book, Before the Alamo, which describes the, uh, the skirmish at um, Gonzales. Very good. This is uh, actually it's fascinating. the The history of Texas is fascinating, but this is a this is a great take. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I hope it's not too complicated because Texas history before the Alamo is very, very complicated. Um, and I should say that uh, the two protagonists of the book are involved here. Uh, Emilia is my female protagonist, obviously, and Damaso, she is half Indian and half, uh, uh, both of them are actually half Indian and half Spanish, and so is he. And Damaso um, got dragooned into the Mexican army. He is a partisan of the Constitution of 1824, so he is, in essence, a Democrat, not with the capital D, a small D. Um, and uh, so he is reluctantly fighting in the army that is a centralist power. In other words, it's under the command, the ultimate command of Santa Ana, but the immediate command of Colonel Ugartechia, um, who wants the cannon back from Gonzales. Uh, so here we go. The next morning at 7, Teniente Castañeda, Teniente is lieutenant, and I'll uh, see if I can call him lieutenant from here on in. Uh, Teniente Castaneda summoned Damaso. Private Martinez, bad news. Colonel 
uh, Ugartechea sent a small delegation to Gonzalez about 10 days ago, asking that they return the six-pound bronze cannon that belongs to Ramon Musquez, who lives here in San Antonio. He lent it to them two, two or three years ago to help them fight off the Comanche. They haven't needed it, but the mayor of Gonzalez refused. Instead, they took our delegation members prisoner and finally released them with a message that they will not, under any circumstances, give up the cannon. They say they need it for their own defense against centralist forces, and they'll fight for their rights guaranteed under the Constitution of 1824. Damaso, taken aback by the probable conflict with his plans to marry Amelia that morning, shook his head. And what has Colonel Ugartechia decided to do about that? He's sending a hundred cavalry this morning to take the cannon by force. Uh-oh, that could be the spark that starts an explosion. Damaso clenched his fists. The captain's eyebrows drew together. I fear so, too, but I must obey my orders, and so do you. And so must you. You'll be coming as one of my cavalry. I've seen how well you ride and manage your rifle from, from horseback, and I'll see that you're promoted to sergeant. By the way... Will I be able to ride my horse, my horse Audas, on this expedition? Not yet, uh, not yet, Lieutenant. Uh, another two or three months, and he'll be ready. Caramba! I was hoping he'd heal faster than that. God knows uh, what we'll be facing before long, and I'd prefer to ride my favorite horse. Just be glad he won't be shot or stabbed in the next few months, Senor. And many thanks for the promotion. Totally unexpected. Damaso hurried to make preparations for the expedition. By 9 o'clock, the cavalry had mustered in military plaza behind the church, and he had only a moment to ride to the courthouse to inform the mayor and Amelia that he had been summarily promoted to sergeant of the cavalry and would be riding out at once to put down a rebellion in Gonzales and to seize the cannon there. The next few days were agony. Emilia managed to intercept the messengers who arrived at least every other day. She, by the way, is, is working at the courthouse, so that's why she manages to intercept the messengers, uh, take their dispatches, and then deliver them to the mayor. Once read, he mercifully let her know any news that concerned her. She learned that centralist General Koss was making rapid headway towards Bihar. However, the next message reported that on the 2nd of October, Captain, uh, that is Lieutenant Castaneda and the cavalry had surrendered to a they had surrendered to a band of settlers at Gonzales without retrieving the cannon and had suffered a number of casualties. She paced the floor, praying that Damaso was not among the wounded. He and the cavalry arrived two days later. Several men, still in the saddle, wore bandages on legs, arms, chests, and heads, and two men lay on a wagon, severely wounded, perhaps dead already. Horses, too, had been wounded. Damaso wore a bandage around his left bicep and guided his horse with the right hand. The sun had already set and lamps were lit when he finished the necessary formalities and reports. He, he then goes to see Emilia, and she immediately starts uh, to doctor him. Uh, she had learned uh, nursing earlier on. Excuse me. <coughs> so far, fascinating. I... <coughs> ah. Yeah, thank you. Um so she um, immediately saw the bandage and the sleeve black with dried blood. Uh, and so she starts um, cleaning his wound and doctor him. And he explains, it's a puncture wound, a splinter off a tree trunk. The settlers, they call themselves Texians, fired the cannon. We went to, uh, to confiscate, conf confiscate twice. 
we were only 400 yards from their position. For a cannon, that's point-blank range. One shot struck a tree. Two men were hurt seriously. I fear they died on the way back. How foolish of those settlers. This will mean all-out war against Texas. Her tone was calm, however, as she assessed the wound, realizing she must cut off the sleeve to see its extent. He nodded, or most likely. Lieutenant Castaneda was surprised that they decided to attack after the parley, where he told them that we were unwilling to fight and only wanted to, to recover the cannon. He even told them he supported the Constitution of 1824, but still they fired on us. Afterwards, he ordered the, the bugler to sound the call to retreat, and we did, taking the wounded men and animals. We had to shoot two more horses on the way back. It took me a minute to realize I had a piece of wood sticking out of my arm. I jerked it out. It bled. You can see that on my sleeve. I bound it tight. And that concludes the segment I'm going to read hmm. from my book. But that gives you a, um, a, a vignette, at least, of the, uh, of the battle, yeah. uh, which was totally one-sided. <laughs> and not very heroic if you <laughs> if you want the truth because the uh, the people in Gonzales had no absolute right to the cannon that they had borrowed from San Antonio in the first place and promised to give it back upon request. Okay, so um, you know is that is just to interrupt for a second. I mean, is this blasphemy to certain Texans? I mean, do certain Texans? consider this a you know obviously they consider it a major uh battle and a heroic battle or um, not quite the alamo but the uh you know the the prelude to uh what would yes. be the uh, alamo is what you're saying blasphemy to some people oh yes of course yeah oh yes uh any texan who hears me uh who is um uh, who believes the myth about the Alamo and uh, all the legends that uh, have built up around it will also be angry that I'm interpreting uh, the Battle of Gonzales this way. Uh, but so did the author of um, this article that came out in the Texas Monthly in Feb back in February. And I ran across it as I was leafing through the magazine in the doctor's office yesterday. And the article is uh, uh, is entitled "Revising the Canon." <laughs> of course, canon uh, can mean two things: sure. it means the accepted doctrine uh, on one hand, and the uh, the weapon on the other hand. The author is Christopher Hooks, um, and I don't know him, but uh, but the little article is very very good, and I think very significant. So I am going to be uh, paraphrasing a lot of it as I go along here. Uh, so, as you were just saying, there's a mismatch between the mythical heroism of the of the Battle of Gonzales, which was not a battle; it was well, a one-sided skirmish, um, <clears throat> and the trivia, the trivial nature of it. True, um, they did fire on the army, on the army detachment that had come to get the. Uh, the cannon. They did kill two men. Uh, they did uh, uh, lightly, I would say, lightly wound uh, a bunch of others uh, with either shrapnel or pieces from the tree that fell on them. Um, so, and that was the extent of it, really. So, um, it, it, what they were after, of course, what the uh, detachment was after was uh, this brass six-pound cannon, <laughs> which uh, the, uh, Christopher Hooks says was a dinky weapon. <laughs> <laughs> he says it was uh, slow-firing and inaccurate and useful ma mainly for making a lot of noise. Oh. And they hadn't even had to use it against the Comanche because in the last two or three years they'd had no attacks. So they really hadn't needed it. Um, but, of course, 
they knew that the centralist government in um, in Mexico, uh, led ultimately led by uh, President and Generalissimo uh, Santa Ana, uh, was approaching, and so they wanted the cannon uh, to fire on the uh, on the Spanish centralist army, uh, the Mexican centralist army rather. Okay, so. Um, the uh, the reason why Gonzalez was even remembered at all was because, ironically, um, a mother and a daughter, uh, citizens of Gonzalez, Sarah and Naomi DeWitt, <coughs> uh, made the flag uh, for the uh, for the militiamen. And by the way, the, there were 150 militiamen and 100 dragoons of uh, Mexican cavalry. Uh, so the um, the cavalry was outnumbered and reluctant to fire upon uh, the people of Gonzales. But the uh, militiamen were not at all reluctant. Anyway, so the whole thing was immortalized, uh, unwittingly more, more immortalized by this flag that was made uh, out of Naomi's wedding dress. <laughs> mm. So it was white, and they had let her to come and take it <laughs> on the bottom. Uh, they had embroidered a silhouette of the cannon in the middle of it, and above the cannon there was a big black star. So uh, the lettering was all in black and all embroidered on this piece of uh, former wedding dress. Um, so uh, this, um, uh, you, you might say that the aesthetics of, of this flag, uh, made the whole thing memorable. And uh, so it became a part of the heroic myth of Texas independence after that. So this flag then has been taken over by the gun lobby, the gun people, uh, who are the very far right-wing people in the West uh, as a whole, and Texas in particular. And instead of a cannon nowadays, the weapon in the middle of the flag is an AR-15. This is an automatic rifle? Yes, and, and a bloody, bloody uh, and very efficient weapon of war. And that flag then became popular in the late 90s, uh, and, and of course, during this century, it became increasingly popular. And if I'm not wrong, the flag appeared here and there uh, on January 6th as well. Yeah, I didn't see it, but I believe you're correct. I believe that it, that it did. It's, you know, yeah. uh, just, a, just a side note here, uh, Charlton Heston, uh, the man uh, we, we grew to know as Moses, uh, right, he uh, he became the NRA president, and he had a famous line and a famous speech. He said, "You could have my my gun when you pry it from my cold dead hands." Right. So, in in some ways, I I liken uh, "come and take it" to to uh, what Charlton Heston saying <laughs> saying there. Yeah. So, uh, yes, yeah, quite so. That's a very good comparison. <laughs> right. Uh, so. Um, Christopher uh, Hook says here that in 2021 he was in Cairo and he saw a teenager driving a motorized rickshaw uh, and uh, the AR-15 version of the flag was was painted, deckled um, on the back of the rickshaw. <laughs> so it has gone international. It's not just not just in Texas and not just in uh, in right wing pro gun circles in the United States in general. It's uh, it's everywhere. So um, it's it's effective probably as uh, an icon, partly because it looks cool, yeah. uh, and <laughs> and partly because it ties today's efforts to uh, expand gun rights. Uh, to one of the oldest and proudest moments in Texas history, uh, 
of course, uh, falsely uh, aggrandized uh, um, and, uh, and, of course, believed in by most patriotic Texans. Uh, it is an act of defiance against oppression is what it's, it tends to be. So, um, actually, the history of guns in Texas is not pro-gun. Uh, in the frontier times, in the Old West, the state tried desperately to uh, to rein in gun violence, um, and Texas banned uh, the carrying of handguns for the longest time. And cattle cattlemen associations here in Texas uh, also tried to uh, they begged cowboys to stop. Uh, uh, carrying their six shooters, um, which, of course, uh, as Hollywood has made very plain, uh, which, uh, when brought into bars, uh, lead to uh, to quarrels and violence and and death. So lots of bloodshed. Uh, and so the the gun, guns were handguns anyway were outlawed. Rifles were not because they, generally speaking, were not carried in town but used properly for hunting instead. Um, so uh, then uh, in the 20s and 30s, the 1920s and 30s, uh, the Tommy gun was occasionally used for mass slaughter. So there, was ma- there were mass shootings before, uh, before uh, Columbine. Uh, so, um, the, and until 1995, there were laws in Texas against carrying guns. And then in 1995, gun regulations began to be relaxed in this state. So, uh, during the 1970s and 80s, there were a lot of stories in the Texas, uh, Texas Monthly itself um, about heroic acts uh, by using guns and guns used in other kinds of situations, but there was no political connotation to those uh, those stories. Um, the political connotations be- began in the mid-90s. And, uh, of course, it's gotten worse and worse as we go along. So it became, uh, it became a fetish. Um, and they, uh, guns became ideological symbolism of, or symbols rather, of self-determination and uh, and liberty, yeah. freedom. Right. Yeah, and freedom to carry guns and murder other people. Right. Uh, of course. They, yeah. They leave that part out. Yeah. The murder part. Yeah. Yes, unfortunately, and it's still and it goes on, and it's it's getting worse. Um, now, uh, Christopher says that since 1980, um, the uh, uh, the percentage of Texans who own guns has been dropping continually. But he says uh, the, those people, uh, which is a small percentage of our population who have guns and are gun uh, enthusiasts own more and more guns. So they their homes become uh, bristling fortresses with all kinds of guns, including, of course, guns of mass destruction, uh, like AR-15s and uh, AK-45s or 47s, whichever. Yeah. <laughs> 47, I think it is. Yeah, I think AK-47. Yeah, yeah. So the new Gonzalez flag then is uh, is very much in favor with them, um, and it pretends to be timeless, but it is not. <laughs> it is weirdly with with the uh, with the AR-15 with the automatic rifle uh, depicted on it. It is brand new, or certainly um, certainly very very recent. Excuse me. Yeah. Oh, just uh, Um, yeah, yeah. Just uh, just amazing how uh, how these stories that uh, are so relevant to your uh, neck of the woods there, and and you even you wrote the whole uh, 
um, historic fiction on uh, on the subject and how it's it's relevant now uh, mm-hmm. by uh, by so many of your your fellow statesmen and women um, to uh, to utilize for a whole different viewpoint, which is you know it's it's fascinating. Yes. And, of course, the state legislature is on the other side. Yes. I mean, it's wholly Republican, and it's uh, – well, it's not. It's uh, it's majority, heavy majority Republican. Uh, it does not reflect the actual uh, opinion of the Texas citizens themselves, which is uh, often the case in uh, in states that are ruled by uh, Republican legislators and governors. So um, – the other thing is that Texans, those those particular Texans, the gun people, the flag people, uh, imagine themselves to be uh, the underdog, to be in danger. And this calls to mind the myth that they need their guns, and especially their guns of mass of, of war, mass killing. Uh, because they fear the the arrival of uh, troops, paratroopers, or troops uh, in black helicopters, all dressed in black with black um, uh, boots, and uh, and of course with uh, weapons, um, and they hope that they can defend themselves, the underdogs that they are. Uh, but as it <laughs> In reality, they are overdogs because they can kill. Uh, they could kill everybody in Gonzales and uh, and the uh, the army, the cavalry that came to re- recover the cannon, all with one AR-15. <laughs> so, so there's nothing uh, inferior about them. No. They're they're a, a big menace, and also uh, uh, it seems to me now this is this is me, not Christopher uh, Christopher Hook. Um, all of this me- emphasis on black came up during the Obama administration. It became popular during that, yeah. and it, it just seems to me the fact that we had a black president that they hated and that Mitch McConnell uh, was uh, desperate to make into a one, one-term one president and failed, um, that that has to, something to do with the imagination of all these people in black, and maybe their faces were too. Uh, so I think it was a racist fantasy on top of everything else. And then we have, uh, you remember Cliven Bundy? Uh, Cliven Bundy. He's the guy who was grazing his cattle on government land without paying uh, the grazing yeah. uh, fees uh, for years and years, decades, in fact. And the government finally uh, asked him for a million dollars in back uh, revenue. And uh, he then set up uh, a, a military re- resistance, not military, but uh, he had sharpshooters. No, right. uh, and that case, by the way, I researched it uh, quickly, um, not thoroughly, but very quickly to see how it came out, because I know that the government withdrew and left uh, Cliven Bundy and company and his snipers uh, in charge. Uh, to drive their cattle back onto the land, that uh, the government land, the government reserve. Um, and that case is still being litigated to this very day. Mm-hmm. So there's no solution to it yet. Mm-hmm. So, so um, we have then, uh, I, I'm surprised that that he didn't use the flag because it would have been, uh, it would have been his uh, um, very appropriate for his cause. Yeah, it's right so, up his alley. It's a, it's it's almost like the flag was made for him. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, he's in he was in Nevada, so uh, so this problem is not just Texan. Uh, it's particularly bad here, but it's all over the West. So anyway, um, in a in a sense. It is a flag which proclaims itself to be against tyranny, and yet it is imposing the tyranny of deadly force uh, on the rest of us. And if we allow this tyranny,
irony of the ability of 18-year-olds to buy AK-45s or AR-15s and murder uh, their classmates or to go into grocery stores and murder everybody in there. Um, um, we have, we really have only ourselves to blame. We really do need to force the issue and get rid of uh, those weapons, uh, those military weapons that are only pro uh, properly used on the battlefield. And to at least the beginning, a small beginning, would be to raise the uh, age in which you could purchase those weapons to 21. Yeah, also, uh, you know, mental and emotional uh, uh, background checks, uh, you know, like strengthened. Um, you know, there's not really, you know, that's, that's not something that, that sounds unreasonable to me. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, it's not unreasonable, but... Um, Reason has no purchase on people who, who are purchasing these these weapons, and uh, and stockpiling them. So their homes are real fortresses, as I said before, bristling with weapons, and they they don't stop with uh, uh, with these uh, these uh, automatic rifles. They uh, they also have uh, grenades and and other devices of that sort, which are weapons of war, of course. Of course. And they're waiting, they're just waiting for those people to come in black helicopters uh, and to, and I don't know what they think the government's going to do with them <laughs> once they come <laughs> uh, come and seize them or try to seize them. Uh, what, what does the governor want, the government want with them in the first place? The whole fantasy is insane. <laughs> Wow. Paranoid, of yeah. course. <laughs> well, uh, come, uh, the, the flag says, come and take them. You know, yeah. You know, t I dare you, basically. It's a dare. Come and take it, and we'll we'll kill you if you do. Right. That's it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, so that's, uh, that was my thoughts added to uh, Christopher Hook's article in Texas Monthly. Uh, and that was an anniversary, the 50th anniversary issue back in February. So it had a lot of interesting stuff of, of uh, retrospection, introspection, uh, thinking about what's gone on in this, uh, in this state and why Texas should not be uh, puffing itself up and considering itself heroic and and some a place where nobody can do any wrong, mm. except the libs, of course, the, the liberals. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, we're 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 living in uh, in a time where it, it feels like something's coming to a head, and I hope I'm yeah. you know I hope I'm wrong, uh, but you know the uh, oh well I, you know an interesting thing, and and again I don't want to get too sidetracked here and. Um, you know, it, it's wonderful uh, the uh, the the article and and your addition to it, um, just a wonderfully uh, appropriate, um, uh, you, you know, uh, f you know, I, I guess uh, subject for a uh, for a radio show for a podcast. Uh, one of the things in the in the background, people are listening to this. You know, some people later tonight, uh, some people tomorrow, but. Um, uh, but we're, we're talking about this two days after uh, the uh, former President Trump had decided that uh, to, well, he, he announced it before, but he said that he was going to be arrested on Tuesday, and he called for protest, mass protest, which was a scary thought because we thought we'd have, you know, militias showing up, you know, in protection of, uh, of uh, Donald Trump. Uh, do you know how many people showed up for a protest in New York City? That was the big oh, one. Oh, I don't Sunday. know, a dozen or so. It wasn't uh, 50, 50 people. 50, so, uh -huh. yeah. So somewhat less than an army. And again, I don't want to dare them. I mean, I thought that was a scary moment. Um, and it harkens back to January 6th. And I think, you know, again, and I'm, I'm trying to play it down the middle, but, um, you know, when people talk about Stormy Daniels and a former porn star, I mean, yes, it's, it's certainly not a... Um, 
uh, you know, a proud moment in America that a president is, you know, just, just like with President Clinton with Monica Lewinsky. But, you know, yeah. it, you know, to be paying off porn stars um, isn't isn't our proudest moment for a president. It's not exactly the uh, Emancipation Proclamation. Right. It's not exactly a uh, the Getty Gettysburg address. What uh, what what happened there? But the uh, the one thing that I think is going to ultimately test us um, and and test uh, the country is um, the evidence uh, pointing towards the former president. And again, uh, I'm going to try to play it down the middle, but pre uh, President uh, Trump urging people to to riot, to uh, to insurrect yes. and and certainly, uh, you know, being caught on tape in Georgia trying to get uh, get the uh, the government there to do something illegal to overturn an election. That's where I think the uh, the real um, crimes are going to be uh, challenged, and and we'll find out whether you could charge a former president. You certainly could charge him, but if you can, um, uh, you know, indict and convict and you know all of that, a former president. But that's where um, I, I think uh, it'll it'll test our uh, our country if. If he becomes more um, uh, popular among his, you know, you know, some fanatically um, uh, supportive people of his, uh, or if they still don't bend uh, when when evidence like that is out, then you know maybe we're looking at a uh, a scary moment. But um, the idea that fifty people showed up to uh, defend the honor of. Uh, of of uh, a president that's saying he's getting arrested, um, that that was a uh, I think a positive thought, and and we're not going to uh, uh, fear that there's a new civil war uh, upon us with 50 people showing up. But again, I don't want to certainly don't want to dare anyone. Yes, right. Well, you just said 50 people showed up to 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 defend the honor. Yeah. Have a president, have a president without honor. Yeah. Well. Yeah. I. I. I miss. I misspoke. And, and again, I'm trying no, to play it down the. You way. didn't. It was. <laughs> it's a natural thing to say, but it's yeah. so ironic. <laughs> defend. Defend the. Um. The actions. The actions. Of, yes. Of a. Or simply of defending the man. Yeah. Right. It's the man. Blindly he has defended. Become, Blindly defended. He has become a demigod for these people. I, you know, uh, it's it, it, very interesting, and 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 you know, with the background of what you just laid out, it, uh, it you know, I think we're you know we're looking at a uh, you know at a crossroads in, in our uh, in our country's history. But um, uh, you know, who knows? Maybe you know, maybe that's being played up too much. And um, but uh, certainly, uh, you know, the the gun uh, control battle, uh, pro and 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 con. Um, that's not being played up. That is a that is a genuine, um, uh, real divisive issue in our country, and uh, and it's going to be as long as these mass shootings are occurring and and everything else. But um, we we're looking at a uh, you know we, one day uh, we're looking at a showdown. Hopefully not a military showdown, but we're looking yeah. at some type of showdown, legislative or something along those lines. But uh, it's very scary. Yes, and by the way, there was a uh, an abortive attempt at a mass shooting last weekend uh, at a school in Arlington, where a student uh, came with an AR-15. I don't. I think it was, uh, and tried to murder people, and he succeeded before he was stopped uh, in killing one boy and wounding a, one girl. God. So he was stopped in his attempt to kill dozens of people. Uh, but he was there, he had the gun, and he was a student, and he was killing fellow students. So that pattern is definitely established, and uh, live well, and or <laughs> live, deadly, uh, and everywhere in Texas, apparently, because Arlington is uh, on the opposite uh, side from, uh, from Uvalde, pretty much. Yeah. Well, I, so, uh, our thoughts and prayers go out to the families of of the the boy and the girl that was shot, uh, and thank God, thank God there weren't more. But uh, two is far too many, and yeah. uh, you know, one death is uh, is is unacceptable. But um, wow, uh, we're yeah. uh, we're at a crossroads here. 
Yes, we keep saying that, but it keeps crossing. Yeah, <laughs> we, right. don't, we don't do anything real to stop it, mm. because although the people are, are for gun control measures, the legislatures are not in, in all of the uh, uh, Republican states. So, uh, so they are really intimidated by the NRA, uh, which doesn't have that kind of real power. Um, and, and their their uh, ideology, of course, tells them that they should have uh, they should have uh, self defense uh, means of self defense and uh, and to maintain their freedom and their honor <laughs> and all the rest of that, uh, which is uh, an ideology and a mythical one at that. Yeah. Well, Doc, uh, great work as always, and. Um We'll be talking to you again real soon. Actually, we're we're right upon our our normal schedule. Um, thank you very much, and, uh, and congratulations on a successful uh, event of creative people, and uh, you know, a little get together, but uh, creative uh, get together. So, yeah. uh, congratulations on on another successful event. Hopefully, uh, there'll be more and more uh, coming in your future. Well, they keep on coming. That's mm -hmm. true. Uh, now we have, as I say, we have a very uh, serious uh, art uh, group here in, in literature, uh, music, dance, theater. Uh, we're doing okay, to, uh, San Antonio is. It's, it's not a frontier uh, hick town <laughs> at all. No, not at all. It's a, a great city, and it's a well-run city, actually. Uh, Doc, uh, thank you very much. And uh, to everyone out there, we, we thank you all for tuning in each and every week. Please binge listen to anything that you've missed. And Frank McKay signing off. We'll see you all next time on The Florence Weinberg Show. <laughs>